0: Alrighty, Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting founder. We have a serial entrepreneur, you know, building, scaling, financing, exiting, all the above. I think that we're going to be learning quite a bit here, all the good stuff. Uh, but without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Ethan Agarwal. Welcome to the show. Hey, how are you? Thanks for having me. So, Ethan, give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up in Montreal?
1: Actually, great. Uh, My dad was a professor at McGill and learned a lot from him about software and engineering and and building in general. Um, And then he started a company in the semiconductor software space uh, in 94 called Logic Vision and uh, moved our whole family out to the Bay Area. And so I've been in the Bay Area since 94 and got to, you know, watch this industry grow here.
0: So I guess two things that come to mind there is, what was that uh, process? Because at nine years old, I mean, you really realize what's happening around you. So how was that process, you know, for you of going to a new place, completely unknown, new friendships? I guess, how would you say that that uncertainty has made who you are today?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think the ability to adapt to new situations, there's there's some research that's been done around Uh, how frequently successful founders moved when they were growing up. And there's some really high correlation in the success that founders have had and the number of times they moved as kids. I don't know exactly why, but it's probably something around your ability to adapt to different situations and people. And so as a nine-year-old, you know, you have friendships and you have opinions and you're familiar with stuff. And it was a whole new reset for me. But obviously, I had my family there. And... You know, we spoke the language and everything. And so watching uh, my dad do something that he was really passionate about uh, was very inspiring to me.
0: Yeah, because that was quite a big switch, you know, for him and and also for the family, you know, something completely unknown, too. I mean, going from professor to entrepreneur, that's quite a quite a stretch. So I guess uh, how was that, you know, for him? And also how was for you, you know, to be able to experience to the ups and downs of seeing your father going through that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's 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 hard to start a company under the best of conditions. I think it's even harder when it's, uh, you know, a new country, um, a different industry entirely. Uh, uh, if you've ever seen, there's a great documentary on Mitt Romney when he was running for president against Obama. It's on Netflix, I think. And uh, there's an episode on uh, election night where his par- or his family is sort of consoling him because it looks like he's going to lose. And they're talking about, you know, how great he is. And he says, listen, my dad took me from you know home base to third base, and then I'm starting on third base and you know his dad, I don't know if you know his history, but you know he grew up in Mexico, he came to America, he was the CEO of GM, I think he was the governor of Michigan. so you know Mitt got to start on third base, went to HBS and this and that. and so I feel like I got a lot of that um, accelerant by watching my dad start his company from nothing. He ultimately took it public and then sold it. And so I was fortunate enough to not only have sort of resources, but more importantly, have the education and the access to the information that I needed to become an entrepreneur myself.
0: The fact that you were able to that you were able to see that and that you were also in in the Bay Area. I mean, do you think that that made you think, hey, you know, I think that one day I'm going to do this, too?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I came here in 94, which arguably was the best time to be here. I wish I was 10 years older. Uh, than I am, because maybe I could have taken advantage of it. But, you know, we we came here, Netscape was starting. Uh, I went to a school called Harker, which is in San Jose, which is where a lot of um, kids of tech people uh, uh, went. And so a lot of my friends' parents were starting companies or working at Cisco or working elsewhere. And so that, you know, it's not just about the money, but sort of the innovation and the culture was all around us. And so I grew up in that. And then Um, You know, technology has always been really interesting to me. I'm not a technical person. I'm not an engineer. I don't write software, but I've been very interested in how technology can change access and how technology can uh, uh, make people achieve things that they would not be able to achieve otherwise. And so that part of innovation has always been really exciting to me. I'm the kind of person that likes to break things open and see how they work inside.
0: And 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 one question that comes to mind here is obviously being surrounded by all this technology and innovation what got you into economics and and politics
1: Yeah so I I went to Johns Hopkins uh for undergrad and I was an economics major there was a brief period there where I wanted to work in politics and and particularly as a lawyer and I was interested in that because of sort of the impact that you can have uh well, what I thought would be the ability to drive impact uh, by being part of the public sector and, and potentially being an elected official. Um, I think uh, I look at that today and I say the ability to drive impact at scale is arguably greater through software than it is through uh, policy, at least the way that things are you know, today. And so uh, as I got older and I, I started thinking more and more about how can I drive impact, I realized that there's actually a lot of uh, uh, work and uh, reach that you can have by building really, really great software. And software is far more scalable than hardware or any other um, sort of technological innovation that has occurred in the last you know, 200 years. And so as software and the internet really started to scale, you know, early 2000s, mid 2000s, I started thinking about where do I wanna spend my time? And that became pretty natural for me.
0: And then you went to uh, Lehman, you know, you did your MBA. Now, one thing that uh, that is interesting here is that typically, you know, people would do an MBA and then, you know, that is what pushes them to to start a company because they meet their co-founders uh, at, the, at the MBA program. Now, in your case, I mean, you had it in the family, the entrepreneurship. You were also, you know, in, ra- raised in an area full of innovation. What do you think took you so long to get going, you know, with starting your own company?
1: Yeah. So this was a very conscious decision, which is that I saw a lot of entrepreneurs start companies, you know, 21, 22 out of school. And look, I I admire people who have the uh, ambition and tenacity to do that. But I was very concerned about starting a company before I was ready, so to speak. So I decided to spend the first 10 years of my career learning how companies are built and learning how companies are run. So I spent two years at Uh, investment banking. I spent two years getting my MBA at Wharton. I spent three years at McKinsey understanding sort of the operational side of it, strategic side of it, team building side of it. And then I also worked at a hedge fund. So I had about five years of finance experience and three to four years of sort of operational experience. And I combined all that when I started my first company. And I think, you know, could I have done it without all that? Maybe, but I'm, I'm confident that I am a better CEO. I'm a better founder even today. I still use the skills that I gained when I was 21, 22, and how to build a financial model or how to think about valuation. And, you know, all those little things that you learn when you're coming out of an investment banking program or a lot of the things I learned at McKinsey I still use today. So I, I feel confident that that time was well spent and it makes me a better entrepreneur.
0: So when you were, you know, at McKinsey, that's when the idea of Active, you know, came knocking. So walk us through the Sequence of events that happened for you to bring Aptiv to life?
1: Yeah. So I was, you know, just like any other consultant, traveling four days a week. And, you know, you gain a lot of weight because you're uh, uh, very, very busy. But also, you know, a lot of the places you go don't have great food or don't have great training or gyms or whatever. And so I gained a lot of weight. And this was around 2014, 2015 when Soul Cycle was really popular and the studio classes were really popular. And I remember thinking two things. One is I was like, it's kind of ridiculous that to get access to these high quality trainers and high quality classes, you have to spend $35 per class. Now, fortunately, I was in a place where I could afford that, but most of the world is not like that. And then the second thing was even at that price point, you had to deal with the hassle of signing up on time before it sells out. And you had to go to a specific place at a specific time. And if you were traveling, you couldn't take it with you. And so It was all this stuff that just didn't make sense to me in an era of the Internet, you know, and everything else being on our phones. And so I said, what if I could take studio quality classes with me? That was the premises. And so we then said, "Okay, what is a uh, what is a great studio quality class? It has three things. It has a trainer who provides uh, motivation, uh, music and guidance. Those are the three things that create a great workout. And so we just started creating audio based classes. And uh, we realized that audio was actually a much better delivery medium than video because when you think about working out, almost never is your head anchored to a specific, you know, three inch uh, uh, range for 45 minutes, right? Like if you're running down the street or if you're doing yoga, you want flexibility of movement. And so if you have really compelling audio, you will actually be more engaged. And a great example of that, by the way, is when you're listening to a podcast, as as your audience is right now, you tend to do single activity when you're listening to a podcast versus when you're watching TV, for example, which has both video and audio, you tend to be doing something else. And so there's something about the singular nature of audio that actually makes it more engaging than dual medium of video and audio. And so we came up with this idea of audio based fitness and no one else was doing it. The other popular fitness products at the time were things like Daily Burn and a couple others, but they were all video focused. And so we realized that audio based fitness was going to be really powerful.
0: So then in this case, what ended up being the business model and how are you guys making money for the people that are listening to get it?
1: Yeah, so Aptive was a subscription business. It still is. We charge uh, somewhere between $10 to $15 a month. Uh, for unlimited on-demand access to a really large content library, uh, up to you know four thousand classes across thirteen categories. We created forty new classes a week because, as you know in your profession, uh, creating fresh content is really important. And you know di- most digital content has a very low um, uh, tail. I mean, there's certain obviously exceptions to that, Michael Jackson's catalog, et cetera. But by and large, freshness of content is really critical. So we were always creating new classes. So the subscription always became more valuable. And, you know, we grew to have over a million paying subscribers in 20 different countries. And the uh, uh, company did, you know, just about 100 million of revenue. So and uh, we ultimately ended up selling the company. So I would say, you know, there were certain areas that I wish we had done better. But from a, you know, it was my first at bat. And uh, uh, given that, I'm, I'm proud of you know what the team built.
0: Absolutely. Now, for you guys, you know here you raised about 70 million bucks. Uh, but I know that the first round of financing that you did, you know, you had 100 over 120 nos to get to a yes. How do you how do you keep going when you get so many nos?
1: Yeah, I think you have to be a little delusional and like a little uh, silly to start a company in the first place. The question you have to ask yourself is, are people giving you a no because there's like a fundamental problem with what you're building? Or are they giving you a no because you just haven't gone far enough for them to give you a yes? So I've I've raised over $100 million of capital in probably seven or eight different rounds of financing. And what I've learned is investors need something to hang their hat on. And what I mean by that is there's, there's generally five buckets of things that an investor is going to look at. One is the team. Uh, you know, is, is it a bunch of PhDs from whatever school working on a scientific problem? If so, great. Nothing else matters. They'll, they'll take a bet on that. Two is the product and the technology itself. You know, is it something like OpenAI, you know, where it doesn't matter who the team is, it doesn't matter about anything else, but if the software and the technology is so revolutionary... They'll take a bet on that. Number three is the growth. So if you have unbelievable growth, it doesn't matter what the product or the team or anything else is, they'll invest in that. Number four is uh, uh, the um, market. So is it you know enterprise software 10 years ago? Is it AI today? Uh, uh, if you're reasonably good in that market, then they won't care about anything else. And then the last thing is who else is investing? And so, when I was my first-time founder, non-technical, uh, you know, out of an MBA, raising in the fitness space, I had none of the five things for them to hang their hat on. But eventually, um, Active, you know, grew quite significantly, and our growth became so significant that they couldn't deny it, and they hung their hat on the growth metric because I still didn't have a you know, massive team. I still didn't have incredible product and software. I still didn't have, uh, the fitness was a terrible industry at the time. And so I had sort of fought through and made the, found the one thing that I was confident they could hang their hat on. And I still remember like in uh, uh, November of 2015, Aptiv did 5,000 of ARR. In December, it did 20,000. In January of 2016, we went from twenty thousand to fifty thousand, then seventy five, then one twenty one, then three eighty six. So we were growing incredibly quickly on an MRR basis, and you know that's how we were able to finally convince Pair, uh, Pair VC, to do our first seed round.
0: So, so let's talk about. You were talking also about then, you know, on others investing. Who else is investing? How do you go about? Controlling or perhaps managing as much as possible that signaling, you know, that is sent to the market with what others are doing towards your business when you're fundraising.
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, you know, look, this my, my 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 most recent round came from Andreessen Horowitz, right? And there's a lot of signaling that comes with that. So as soon as people find out that you're raising money from, uh, you know, e- even when I got my first round from Pear. By the way, Pear did the first round for both my companies, but when Pear did uh, the first round for Aptiv, suddenly a lot of other people wanted to jump in. And then eventually we did another seed round from a fund called Arena VC, which um, is still around uh, a little bit, but at that time they were incredibly popular. And, you know, suddenly someone who three months ago told me absolutely not was suddenly knocking on my door to try to put money in. And, you know, I, I think... Look, I think for, for the founder, it's easy to say like, oh, screw you, you weren't there when I needed you. And now you're sort of following the sheep. And I, it's, it is nice to have that like hanging over them a little bit. But at the same time, I think a lot of investors um, uh, do have uh, the benefit of working with other investors. And once someone really credible comes along, they're willing to follow along with them for worse economics or something. And so, you know, you could argue that there's a there's a, a component of the founder doing this as well, where industries do well, or you know employees want to go work for a hot company, and so I think it's 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 nice to see people come after you, uh, but I think it's uh, it's all a cycle, right? At some point, you're going to need someone that didn't need you, and eventually, they'll need you again, and so I think you know you can feel good for a little bit, but ultimately, we're all here trying to build something, and we all know that this is a hard industry to work in.
0: Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a Series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid-cap type of um, cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. So let's talk about the the acquisition here because obviously you guys grew this to a nice size, you know, over 120 people. You had like 20,000 square feet in... In the in in the in the one in the one world trade, uh, and then also you guys had you know as well build a business to over a hundred million in revenue. So obviously, really impressive numbers. So how did the um, the acquisition come about?
1: Yeah. So okay. So I think one of the mistakes that I made in running the company was uh, uh, we were growing so quickly that I focused almost. I focused too much of my attention on growth and not enough of it on product. And so we were a subscription business, so our whole life was LTV CAC. And in order to increase my... So CACs were naturally going up, and you know CAC is always concentric circle-based. And so the, as you spend more, your CACs will naturally go up, but also CPMs are rising, which are not really in our control. You try different um, uh, uh, distribution channels, and you know some of them will start better and then get more expensive over time. But the point is, if you don't have this really strong LTV and you don't have avenues to grow your LTV, your ratio is always going to get worse because your CACs are undoubtedly always going to get worse over time. And so I was focusing too much of my time on the CAC side of the business and not enough time on the LTV side of the business. And so when it came time where optimizing CACs was becoming really, really challenging or each incremental thing was like a 1% here or 2% there... It was almost too late for me to do anything meaningful on the LTV side. And on the LTV side, you use a contribution LTV, which is your gross margin LTV, not to get into the you know weeds with your listeners, but you should be using your contribution LTV. So really, the only change you can have is in your gross margins. And we did a couple things to make our gross margins better. But really, the hard part of improving LTV is actually making people stick around, and that's product work. and. I didn't spend enough time on our product work. I was spending more of my time on our growth work. And so what ended up happening was we could no longer scale the business at the clip that I wanted to. And uh, we also realized that the TAM was not as big as we had originally hoped. Like we were trying to build a you know, Spotify, Netflix, 100 million subscribers, 10 bucks a month kind of thing. We got to a million paying subscribers, which is pretty good. But I'm learning that the TAM for paid content within digital fitness just isn't that big. And I think a lot of the other companies, you know, that have started since then or that are still around now are all running into this TAM problem within digital fitness, which is you have the early enthusiasts and the company rides a nice little wave, but then ultimately um, you spend a bunch of money, try to acquire that next concentric circle. And it turns out that it doesn't really exist. Like there aren't a hundred million people they're going to pay for fitness, whether it's hardware or software. And so once we realized that, we said, OK, uh, uh, you know, let's let's agree to sell this one and, you know, try and go solve another problem.
0: So then obviously, you know, like here you guys, you know, did the acquisition. And, uh, you know, it took, uh, you know, probably you guys, you, you you did the integration for about a year or so. And then you, you got started with the next company, which is the one that you're running now. We're going to talk about it. But one thing that I wanted to ask you is, what were some of the things that you learned around mental health? Because I think that that's something that entrepreneurs really leave aside. And I unfortunately do believe that entrepreneurship does involve depression. It's just the, the nature of it. You know, the ups and downs, it's really hard to, to, to embrace them, you know, as well. You know, not everyone can do it, you know, in, in a powerful way. I mean, you get to learn, you know, as you go, but, but it's a tough uh, roller coaster to go through. But mental health, what can you tell us about that, Ethan?
1: Yeah, I I don't think you can put too much weight on it. I don't think it's possible. It's 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 eternally critical for founders to focus on their mental health. I I I made the mistake of not doing that in my first company. So let me let me be clear. So there's three things that every founder has to focus on: their mental, their physical, and their financial health. And only by taking care of all three of those can you bring your most productive self to work every day, and I think the battle that we all experience is, you know, you feel guilty. Are, are am I working hard enough? Am I, uh, uh, you know, being responsive to my team? Am I being responsive to my investors and all the investment that folks have put into me and into this company? If I'm spending time taking care of myself, and I learned after my first company that if you are not doing those things and you are actually doing a disservice to your team and your company and your customers and your investors. And I think the the way that I think about it is like uh, adaptive. I remember I, I collapsed at work once. I ended up having ulcers twice. Um, you know, it was, it was to the point where I was unproductive for days or weeks on end because I was working so hard and that was not good for anybody. And so um, with my new company, I, I, you know, we'll talk about it, but this company is actually designed to help founders with their financial health uh, so that, uh, and, you know, Aptiv was really good for uh, uh, physical health and we ended up launching some stuff around mental health as well. Um, but products like Calm and others do do that really well. I think if you don't know why you're building the business and if you don't have good outlets to spend your time outside of work that make you feel better you will not be able to run this job for five or ten or fifteen years or however you're going to how however long it's going to last. So it's critical that anytime someone thinks about starting a company, they think about what are the avenues to um, focus on my mental health when things get really tough. So as an example, I have an executive coach this time. I didn't have one before because I thought it was a sign of weakness, but I got one this time, and she's incredible, and she makes a lot of things. You know, more clear for me, and she helps me uh, see problems and solutions in different ways. Um, and she asks questions that I haven't entertained. And so, uh, it's it's an eternally necessary product. And I think it's not only on the founder. Investors need to be thinking about their founders' needs. Every every investor likes to say, "Oh, we focus on founders, and we are founder friendly." What does that actually mean? Is it a term in a term sheet or is it that you care about this person's well-being and their health? And what are you doing differently than the 50 other investors out there that also provide capital and also say that they're founder friendly? It's the ones that are actually putting their money where their mouth is and actually allowing the investor, the the founder to spend the time on their own health and on their own well-being that are truly founder friendly.
0: So so it sounds like, you know, obviously what you endured uh, with Aptiv, you know, it really, you know, kind of like triggered and incubated, you know, further the idea of what you're doing now at the Coterizo. So, so can you tell us, you know, how you thought about, you know, this idea and and why you thought it made absolute sense to go after it?
1: Yeah, so Aptiv was doing pretty well and I, I turned off my salary at some point and I went to apply for a mortgage because it was time to buy a house and the guy says we can't give you a mortgage you don't have a salary and i said well if you look at my cash and my equity and all my assets like clearly i'm not at a risk of defaulting but he couldn't conceptualize that someone without a salary could afford a mortgage and i remember thinking you know everybody that i know makes a lot more money from their assets than they do from their salary and then eventually you know my wife and i went to talk to a wealth advisor and, you know, the guy does his whole song and dance. And ultimately, he basically prevent, pre- presents us with like a binder that has a fancier version of a 60-40 strategy, right? And I was at this time, I think I was 32 or 33. And I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, I'm not at all interested in a sixty forty strategy at my age and, and sort of where I am in life. I'm interested in, you know, at the time, like. Crypto, and I'm interested in investing in companies. And I want to LP into funds, and what kind of access can you get me? And like, I was super curious and passionate and interested about all this stuff. And it was like this old guy, and just like, you know, gives you this strategy in the same pitch that he's done 50 times, probably 500 times before. And there was just such a disconnect between what he was selling and what I was trying to buy. And, you know, it wasn't just the product, Alejandro, it was the fact that the way that he delivered it showed to me that there was a massive disconnect in the way that I thought about my future and what I wanted to do and what he thought about my future and what he was recommending to me. And so I couldn't do anything about it at the time because I was working on Aptiv full-time. And then after we sold the company, I started looking around and realizing that no one has really solved this problem. And so what the Coterie does is we build financial products for people who make more money from assets than from salary. And that ends up being a lot of founders, a lot of finance people, a lot of startup people. But if you go even deeper, you know, even you know, lawyers or even partners at uh, uh, consulting firms, a lot of people are compensated through ownership, which is actually risk, um, as opposed to through salary. And the legacy financial institutions have not done a good job of adapting to that shift in the economy. And, you know, I understand that 20 years ago because almost everyone was still making a lot of their money through salary or inheritance. But now there's a whole new generation of wealth that's emerging, literally a whole new generation. It's most of our customers are first generation. It's not inherited wealth. They've created the wealth themselves. A lot of them are actually wealthier than their parents and are seeing money for the first time, and don't feel at home going to, you know, a fancy office with wooden panels where some like old white guy is sitting behind a fancy big desk and talking to them about all the fees that they charge, like, that's not the way that we think about money. And so um, I realized that there's just this huge disconnect. And so we wanted to build a product, build a company, build a culture that understands how money is created today and how it's earned and what people want to achieve with their money. And so that's what the Coterie is, is we're helping this generation of entrepreneurs, of builders um, invest, borrow, set up their estate planning, uh, understand about their investments better than any other financial institution does.
0: So second time around here, Ethan, you know, building a company, and obviously, you know, on the first one, you, I'm sure you really understood the importance of people. Now, when it comes to people, um, you know, whether it's on the team or whether it's on the investment side, I'm sure that you learned quite a bit, you know, on the first time. So what did you do differently this time around?
1: Yeah, when I was starting my first company, one of the pieces of advice my dad gave me was uh, focus on your team and everything else will sort, sort itself out. And um, I, I really take that to heart. I think the second time around, you know, there's, a, there's so, so there's a couple of inherent advantages you have your second time around, which is, you know, you know more people, you have built a little bit of credibility, uh, uh, so it's easier to identify and recruit the highest caliber of people. Um, also, I was in less of a rush the second time because I knew that I wanted to start the company with co-founders versus active. I did it by myself. And it started scaling really quickly. And then I had to build a team really quickly. Um, The second time around, I was really focused on hiring the right people. But the right people defined a little bit differently. The resumes matter. They always matter. But it was important to find people that understood what this journey is like and understood the, you know, going back to your earlier question, the mental part of it and the tenacity part of it. And so when I interviewed people for jobs at the Coterie Now or or my two co-founders, the conversations were much more around alignment of why are we building this? Who are we building it for? What is the outcome that we want from this company, N- not just financially, but otherwise? And once we aligned on all of those things, then we started talking about the specifics around you know product and resume and comp and all that kind of stuff. But I can say now, I mean, my two co-founders, Jason and Chris, are outstanding. And I feel a very different level of Camaraderie and a very different level of satisfaction. And, uh, you know, there's there's that saying where victories are sweeter and uh, uh, defeats are are easier, something more eloquent than that uh, when they're shared. And uh, that's exactly how I feel. And I think because both these guys have been through the ringer before, Jason has started and sold two companies before, one to Google, one to Credit Karma. Chris has started and sold many businesses before. Um, they know what this journey is like, and and my investors are incredible. I, I took some of the investors from my first company along uh, uh, with me, and I hired some. You know, I brought some new ones on board this time around. So I, I feel really fortunate about the the team around me.
0: I mean, you've raised this time around already fifty million bucks. So when it comes to fundraising, you know, as well. I mean, was it a little bit easier, you know, this time around or no?
1: yeah i I think anyone anyone saying that a second time fundraise isn't easier is lying to you and also if i'm honest like we raised money in 2021 q4 21 which uh anyone that raised money in that time has got to acknowledge that you know it was probably easier than it should have been i mean i think we probably would have raised capital anyway um but uh yeah it was easier but you look we, we raised money from Andreessen horowitz which is the best investor in the world and so they have been just phenomenal partners. I, I cannot say enough good things about them. And I've, as you know, I've spoken to over 120 investors uh, of all different stages. And I can tell you, um, Andreessen, you know, did a you, you do sort of like a mutual reverse pitch idea. And then, you know, they, they made a bunch of promises and stuff. And like, not only have they been true to their word, they've actually surpassed it. So um, I couldn't I couldn't be more grateful to them.
0: Now, in this case, you know, for the Coterie, you know, obviously incredible, you know, now what you guys are doing, you know, team, everything. How are, I mean, if I had to give you the opportunity of perhaps, you know, going to sleep tonight and waking up in a world where the vision is fully realized, what does that world look like?
1: I don't know. This The this, this potential for this business is just too big. There's, there's so many problems that we need to solve that... Um, I keep running into different types of people or different types of problems that resonate with what we are trying to build because it's not a product. It's a vision for the future of the world where anybody can have access to the right set of financial products relevant to them at that particular time, right? Which is such a crucial aspect because a lot of the products that we offer, some of them at least, already exist in the market, but they're only available if you're a billionaire or if you know the right person or whatever. And so what we decided to do is we said, let's bring that access to the right set of people at the right time in their lives so that they can accelerate what it is that are, whatever it is that they wanna do, right? We're trying to provide freedom. A lot when I, was, when I was starting the company, we interviewed a lot of people and we asked a series of questions. And one of the questions was, how do you define success? And the most common answer that we got was freedom. To do whatever I want. It wasn't like, I want a model S or I want this fancy house or I want this or I want that. It was like, I just want the ability to do whatever I want to do. And maybe some of those things are go buy fancy stuff, but a lot of them are I want to start a company or invest in a nonprofit or whatever. And so we want to provide that freedom. And so the long term vision of this is that people have the freedom to do what they want to do. And we have built the tooling and the products and also the language and the communication and the capabilities with this and the distribution to actually help achieve those things. And I don't know in five years or 10 years what those problems are gonna be, but I feel confident that we are one of the few companies in the world that's even trying to solve them. And because we have this team, you know, I feel pretty confident that we're gonna be the ones to do it.
0: So as we're thinking about the future here, let's think about the past too, but with a lens of reflection. If I was to put you into a time machine, and bring you back in time, maybe to that time that, uh, you know, you were perhaps, you know, like in in, in the NBA, you know, like you were seeing like a bunch of friends, you know, starting companies, all of that stuff. Imagine if you were able to have a chat with that younger self and being able to give that younger self one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now?
1: That one's easy. I would just say to calm down. <laughs> I think you get enamored by the potential And you feel like if you don't capture the full potential immediately, that you're not doing the right thing. And so, you know, when I was starting a company or even before it, every up and down was like the best moment ever or the worst moment ever. And uh, that's not a sustainable way to live. And it's not a sustainable way to run a company. Um, And so I've started, you know, thinking about this more and even, you know, reading like stoicism and other uh, 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 philosophies and started thinking a little bit more about what is a more steady state uh, leadership style look like? What is a more steady state life look like? And, uh, you know, you still want to enjoy your successes and you still want to, you know, learn from your failures, but there's so many of them in this job and they're so unpredictable and they're so close together that extreme emotional volatility on a daily basis is not a reliable or productive way to live your life. And so I now try to keep calm in events of joy and in events of sadness. And I think that's going to be a better long-term strategy for me and then ultimately a better long-term strategy for the company.
0: I love that. Now, for the people that are listening, Ethan, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi?
1: Easiest is just find me on Twitter. I'm just at Ethan Agarwal, uh, E T H A N A G A R W A L. Um, And the company's website is thecodery.co.
0: Amazing. Well, hey, Ethan, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker show today. It has been an honor to have you with us.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation.
0: If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com